He's one of America's scariest serial sociopaths, but you've probably never even heard of him. Mention his name in his hunting grounds, Houston, Texas, and most people will say, who's Dean Coral? Back in the early 70s, the bodies of 28 boys were unearthed, the work of Dean and his two teenage accomplices. The papers dubbed it the largest multiple murder case in United States history. Today, you'd call Dean Coral the Texas John Wayne Gacy. Or, to be more accurate, John Wayne Gacy is the Illinois Dean Coral. Let's recap. So one by one, dozens of boys disappeared from the Heights neighborhood in Houston between December 13, 1970 and July 1973. Eleven of the boys went to the same junior high school, but only their mothers believed they did not run away. Nobody ever suspected 33-year-old Dean Coral. Why would they? Dean was one of the most well-mannered guys you could meet, a fixture in the working-class neighborhood. He helped his mother, Mary, run the Coral Candy Factory, a small little company headquartered across the street from an elementary school in the Heights. Dean earned his nickname, The Candy Man, because he was always ready with a pecan chew or praline for the kids who stopped by. Yep, everybody liked Dean. 12-year-old David Brooks was a regular at Coral Candy. There wasn't anyone waiting for him at home. His parents had divorced and he lived with his father, who was a rough and tumble contractor who didn't really understand his shy, quiet son. But Dean never made fun of David's glasses or called him a sissy. On the contrary, Dean set up a pool table in the factory warehouse and he encouraged the neighborhood boys to come by for a game anytime. But his favorite was David. Dean was the father this kid never had. David would do anything for Dean. So over the next two years, Dean turned into a father. He let David stay at his apartment anytime things at home got to be too much. He gave him advice. He gave him money. And as you might expect, the candy man started expecting favors in return. So David became Dean's play The first time it happened, Dean gave the 14-year-old a four-foot black light as a gift. In the late 60s, Mary Coral closed up shop and moved to Colorado. She fully expected Dean to come with her, but he decided to stay in Houston, and he took a job as an electrician with the Houston Lighting and Power Company. Some say Mary's departure was Dean's turning point. With her out of the way, he was free to be himself, a journey of self-discovery that would take dozens of lives. Nothing from Dean's childhood, though, would suggest the depravity to come. He was born in Indiana on Christmas Eve, 1939. The family moved around a lot, first to Tennessee, then Texas after his parents divorced for the second time. One thing sticks out about David's childhood. He showed none of the classic serial killer red flags. No bedwetting, no fire starting, and no animals mysteriously went missing around him. He had no criminal record of any kind. Quite the opposite. Dean was the one you'd go to if you needed something. Always the ones who are a little too nice isn't it? Dean's first known victim was Jeffrey Conan, an 18-year-old college freshman hitchhiking home for the weekend from the University of Texas in September 1970. It would take three years and many more victims before Jeffrey's body would be found, naked, bound, and gagged under a rock. In December 1970, a few months after Jeffrey Conan disappeared, 15-year-old David Brooks discovered what Dean was capable of when he walked into the man's apartment unannounced. Dean wasn't alone. Two naked boys were tied to his four-poster bed. 14-year-old Danny Yates and his best friend Jimmy Glass had been at a religious rally at a church in the Heights with Jimmy's father and brother that night. In the middle of the service, the boys stood up and walked out of the chapel toward the bathrooms. Somehow, Dean lured them away and they never left his apartment. At first, Dean told David that the boys were models that he recruited for a gay porno ring he worked with. He claimed he'd been paid to send them to California to pose, but he couldn't keep the lie up for long. Eventually, Dean told David the truth. 
truth. Danny and James were buried in a storage shed. In exchange for his silence, he offered the teenager a green Corvette and a job. If he brought some of his friends around, he could earn $200 a boy. How did that sound? From then on, Dean stayed on the move, living in some rentals for only a few weeks. In every place he called home, he made sure to bring his favorite prop, an unpainted plywood torture board, eight feet long, two feet wide, with holes drilled in each corner. On January 30th, 1971, Dean took two more boys, this time with David's help. Their targets were 15-year-old Donald Waldrop and his 13-year-old brother, Jerry. The boys were headed to a bowling alley when Dean pulled up in his white van. They were less than a mile from the church where Danny Yates and Jimmy Glass were last seen only a month earlier, but the Waldrop brothers weren't worried. After all, David was around their age. He and Dean were promising free beer and fun. David later told police how he watched while Dean violated, tortured, and strangled those brothers. In the spring of 1971, three more boys disappeared. 15-year-old Randall Harvey, a good friend of David's, was riding his bike to work when he was intercepted by Dean and David. He endured unimaginable torture before he was shot in the head. David buried his friend's body with the others in the storage shed. 16-year-old Mally Winkle and 14-year-old David Hillegeist were next. Mally knew Dean well. He used to work with him at the Coral Candy Factory, and David had been a former regular. They'd been walking to the community pool when they ran into the candy man. Like the others, they were violated, tortured, strangled before joining Dean's victims in the shed. Their families, like all the families, were frantic. The distraught parents of these missing boys took their worries to the Houston police but they hit a brick wall. Without any evidence that they'd been taken against their will, the boys were labeled runaways and forgotten. Now, Dean got smarter with each victim. By the time he took Mally and David, he had figured out a way to keep the police off his trail. Get this. He threatened Mally to call home and tell his mother that they were okay or else. Their frustrated parents hounded the police for answers. David was looking forward to a family vacation the next day. They didn't believe he ran away, not for a second. And Mally's mother even started her own investigation. She learned that her son's friend knew a man who drove a Plymouth GTX. She told the police that she had seen this car around the Heights, and she even got the license plate, but they didn't check it out. If they had, they would have met Dean Coral much earlier. As the months went by, more and more Houston parents lost their sons, only to get a postcard or a phone call with an explanation for their sudden disappearance. I found a job in Austin. Don't worry about me. Or I went to live with a friend in Dallas. Just half-baked excuses like that, but no one was buying it except for the police, I guess, because they didn't keep looking. But Dean Coral was free to take his sadist sexual desires as far as he wanted, really, without worrying about being caught. By this time, David had a pretty good idea what Dean's type was, young and handsome. So when he introduced him to his good friend, 15-year-old Wayne Henley, he probably figured he'd be collecting 200 bucks before burying his friend's body. But it didn't quite work out like that. See, Wayne was a charismatic kid with a certain swagger that Dean liked. But Wayne was close to his mother, and she even introduced her to Dean. Not surprisingly, she took a shine to the polite man immediately. She probably thought he'd make a wonderful older mentor for her son. But Wayne also was searching for a father figure. His own dad left the family a year before, but he found that replacement in Dean. And in a sick twist, Wayne had been part of the search party looking for David Hillegeist, his friend. But when David's killer gave him the same job offer he gave David Brooks, Wayne took it. Though Dean and his two teenage accomplices cruised the heights in his Plymouth GTX muscle car or his white van. The abductions usually went the same way. David and Wayne offered their friends a ride, a beer, a place to hang out at Dean's apartment. And which one of their friends wasn't going to jump at a ride in a muscle car? What teenager was going to turn down 
down free beer. It was easy to lure them away. They targeted classmates, neighbors, coworkers, friends they'd grown up with, friends of friends. Any boy in the Heights was fair game. So back at Dean's place, the three of them would go to work, getting the unsuspecting boys drunk or high. They called their favorite trick the handcuff game. When the boys were good and loopy, they'd pull out a pair of cuffs and challenge them to try and get out of them. And while they struggled to get free, Dean stripped them naked with Wayne and David's help. His victims were tied to that board, their arms bound above their heads, their feet tied to the holes at the bottom, and then the horrific sexual torture would begin. Sometimes it lasted for days, if Dean had taken a shine to them. So David and Wayne's job was to stand watch and pitch in if anything went wrong. After the teenagers were strangled or shot, Dean's henchmen got rid of the bodies, usually burying them in one of Dean's favorite spots. In 1973, Dean moved to Pasadena, a suburb outside Houston. His father had moved in with his new wife, leaving his empty house to his son. By this time, the three of them had taken dozens of victims. The youngest, 13. The oldest was 20. Two were brothers, but they were taken on different days. They really seemed to be getting into the swing of it, especially Wayne, who found he had a knack for murder. He even strangled and shot some of the boys himself. Now, no matter how many innocents they took, Dean always wanted more. Well, Pasadena offered a new level of privacy. Without those nosy neighbors on the other side of a wall to worry about, Dean gave in to his overwhelming bloodlust. Between June 1st and August 4th of that year, eight boys lost their lives in that house. Maybe it was the growing body count. Maybe it was their consciences finally speaking up. Whatever the reason was, Dean's accomplices, they weren't as enthusiastic as they used to be. David Brooks married his pregnant girlfriend to break away. Wayne Henley tried to join the Navy, but they didn't want a high school dropout. So in the end, he figured that's just fine. If he wasn't around, he worried that Dean might go after his younger brother. And the whole horrible nightmare finally ended on August 8th, 1973, when Wayne arrived at Dean's house with two friends, Tim Curley and Rhonda Williams. In a bizarre twist, Dean had killed Rhonda's boyfriend, Frank Aguirre, the year before. Seeing Rhonda at his door sent him into a fit of rage, not because of her connection with Frank. Obviously, he didn't care about that. But because he demanded boys. He only wanted boys. Something Wayne knew perfectly well. So Dean decided to punish him. So the four of them popped open some beers. They start drinking. Well, Wayne and Tim wanted something harder. So they started huffing some spray paint from a paper bag. But with all the beer and the paint fumes, it wasn't long before they all passed out. The only one left standing was Dean. He hogtied the three teens, gagging Tim and Rhonda, and he waited patiently for them all to come to. There is no doubt Tim and Rhonda were terrified beyond terrified when they opened their eyes. But only Wayne knew what kind of atrocities Dean was really capable of. So when the man ordered him to violate and murder Rhonda while he did the same to Tim, Wayne agreed. So Dean dragged the teenagers to the bedroom at gunpoint and he tied them to the torture boards that he had hanging on the bedroom walls. He never dreamed that Wayne would disobey him. And that was his fatal mistake. Wayne had had enough. When Dean put down the gun to assault Tim, Wayne lunged for it, screaming, I can't go on any longer. I can't have you kill all my friends. And he pulled the trigger six times. The Candyman was dead. Wayne confessed to the police the very same day. David's confession came next. After all this time, Dean's dark secret was out. Wayne led the police and a reporter to a shed that Dean had rented at Southwest Boat Storage at the bottom of a dead-end street in Houston. Inside shed number 11, the police dug up 17 naked decomposing bodies, each one covered in a plastic sheet sprinkled with lime. A camera crew captured Wayne when he called home from the makeshift graveyard. Mama, he said, 
I killed Dean. And from there, the police went to High Island Beach, about an hour and a half away. Wayne and David pointed to the burial sites while curious beachgoers looked on as the remains of six boys were dug up. One of them was 18-year-old Jeffrey Conan, Dean's first known victim. Their next stop, the Piney Woods, over two hours outside Houston. Four bodies were buried there, making a total of 27. Some of Dean's victims had cords wrapped around their necks. Some had tape strapped around their feet and mouths. The torture they endured was way too clear. Their genitals were destroyed. Some had been chewed on. Others were shredded by glass. Dean inserted into them. One boy's penis was cut off. When the body count reached 27, the digging suddenly stopped. Houston found themselves the unwilling record holder for the most mass murders in the U.S. If there were more out there, and David and Wayne thought there might be, as far as the city of Houston was concerned, any remaining bodies would have to stay buried. Well, some parents grabbed shovels and went out to the burial grounds to dig for themselves. But there was another problem, identifying the remains. It would be years before DNA was an option, so they used what they found near the bodies. A wallet, a leather jacket, sometimes they got lucky and a license matched a face. Parents were forced into this new kind of agony. At least one family was given the wrong remains, and they buried someone else's son. Others had no way to know for sure if their missing boy was one of the 27. And then in 1983, the remains of yet another victim was discovered at High Island Beach bringing the total to 28. Are there more victims out there? That is a question we may never know the answer to. As recently as November 2021, there was a fresh search at Dean's old Pasadena home. No new victims were found, but Texas EquiSearch still believes there are more to be discovered. But today, Wayne Henley is the only one of the three still alive. He is serving six life sentences. David Brooks was convicted of one murder, and he died behind bars from COVID in 2020. Before he died, he said he wished he would have told his mother, when Dean started molesting him. As for Wayne, well, he wishes he'd never met Dean. We can't help but think there are dozens of victims due to. And that's your recap. Thanks for hanging out with us today. If you like getting all the crime in half the time, go ahead and tap that subscribe button so you never miss a story. But don't go away. Catch up on more recaps right here, right now. Until next time, take care.